You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38, it says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of ur and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. Then took they the body of Jesus. They wound it in linen cloths with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury, very important. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, also important. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. It had been a number of interesting days, the crucifixion, the things that transpired, the darkness. We're told there was an earthquake. The veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The priest, no doubt, came scurrying out of the temple. Acts will tell us that many of them came to the faith. And we have to realize that 2,000 years ago, these things took place. The Talmud records these earthquakes 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Josephus writes of them. In fact, in Roman archives, and some of them discovered recently, this darkness is described that was across the entire Roman Empire. In fact, one of the Roman historians said it could not have been an eclipse because it was the season of Passover and the moon and the sun were in the wrong place. These are historical events that took place, corroborated by writing outside of the scripture. We're standing here this morning because there was a real Jesus Christ that really died on the cross and really rose again 2,000 years ago, and he is really returning soon. All of this reality. The scripture, you know, brings this to life for us because we're born again. We have the spirit in our hearts and the things that he put to the page, they speak to us so clearly. In the midst of all of these things, you know, darkness, they didn't run and turn on the light switches. Just imagine they had to try to scurry to find an oil lamp from, from noon in the midday, just darkness for three hours. Just try to imagine And there's several men that were evidently shaken deeply by all of this, and that's Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and we want to see them in relationship to Jesus Christ. 
They kind of step out of the shadows here in front of us. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. Nicodemus is only mentioned in John in three different places. But we get a picture of them. Matthew tells us of Joseph of Arimathea that he was a rich man. And then it says that he had his own new tomb hewn into the rock. It was not a cave. It was a tomb that was hand-carved. No pneumatic tools, no blasting. You have to understand the wealth involved to hire men with hammers and chisels to carve into the side of a stone mountain a, a tomb to hewn it, to carve it out so you could walk into it and, and place your dead there, a wealthy man. We're told in Luke that he was a counselor. We're told in Mark that he was an honorable counselor. Dr. Paul Bromley says after studying the Talmud and the writings of the Jews, they feel there were only 14 honorable counselors in the history of Israel by the time the Talmud was written. Luke tells us of Joseph of Arimathea that he had not consented to the counsel and the deed of the Jews. He listened to what they were saying about taking the life of Christ. He did not agree. He did not agree with the crucifixion. He began to stand up. He had been a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, but evidently here in this process, he begins to be outspoken and he does not vote in that direction. He does not agree with the counsel and the deed of what was taking place. Both Mark and Luke tell us he was waiting for the kingdom of God. His heart was in the right place, so much so that he carves a tomb in Jerusalem. He was from Arimathea. That's where his father was entombed, where his grandfather was entombed, where his family lineage was. All that was important to a Jew was there in Arimathea, but he carves a tomb in Jerusalem because he wants to wake up there when Messiah comes, and he knows that the Messiah will come to Jerusalem. So he carves a tomb there. This is a man that believed and put his money where his mouth was. He had a tomb in Jerusalem. Luke tells us, interesting, that Joseph of Arimathea was a man, and he was good, and he was just. Not all wealthy men are that way. A lot of men become wealthy and then not satisfied. They want power. You look at multimillionaires and billionaires today trying to manipulate this election that's going to take place long before we get there. But Joseph of Arimathea says was not like that. He was extremely wealthy, it says, but that he was good and a just man. He was in fear of the Jews because in John chapter 9, the Sanhedrin had decided in the temple in Jerusalem, anybody that had anything to do with Jesus would be excommunicated, would be cut off. So he had walked very carefully. He had been a secret disciple. He had listened to Jesus and watched Jesus and heard his words, maybe seen miracles but secretly for fear of the Jews because everything, his wealth, his reputation, everything was on the line if he would to own Jesus publicly. But evidently in this scene after the, the crucifixion, the darkness, no doubt that confirmed everything he had believed in his heart. Then the earthquake, Jerusalem shaking. No doubt he knew some of the priests that came running out of the temple when the veil was torn Everything's confirmed in his heart. He steps out of the shadows and it says in Matthew that he goes to Pilate, Matthew and Luke says, and he begged the body 
of Jesus. Interesting, Mark tells it to us this way, and I'll, I'll read it. It says, And now when even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went boldly unto Pilate, and he craved the body of Jesus. He went boldly because you just didn't walk into the presence of Pilate. And bodies were only given to family members. And for him to come in and ask for the body of Jesus was something. Now, he's a wealthy man. No doubt Pilate knows who he is. And it says, Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling a centurion, he asked whether he had been dead for a while. He confirms his death. It says, and when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Literally, he gifted the body to Joseph. The only other place in the New Testament where we find that is first Second Peter chapter one verse three. It says, "There is given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness." Given there is given as a gift. Here, Pilate gives the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. He gifts it to him. He gives it to him as a gift. And then there's a structure, and I'll just read it quickly because it, it will come to play. It's called an antisyndetin with a series of chi's, ands, that tell us of action. And he, Joseph of Arimathea, with these ands, and he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in linen and laid him in the sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone to the door of the sepulcher. Those ands tell us of action specifically of Joseph of Arimathea. That's important. He craved. John says he besought Pilate, and Pilate then gives him the body. Joseph of Arimathea, not afraid of being defiled at this point in time. Remember, the other Jews came to Pilate. Pilate had to come out to talk to them. Then he had to go back in to talk to Jesus. He had to come out. Joseph of Arimathea goes right into the presence of a Gentile. He's not worried about being defiled because he's going to touch a dead body. And Numbers 19 says he's going to be defiled for the next seven days all through the Passover, the feast. He's not going to participate. Our other man that steps out of the shadows now here is Nicodemus. Only in John's gospel, three times we hear of him. John 3, of course, you're aware he comes to Jesus at night and says, Master, we know you're sent from God. No one could do the miracles you could do, you do unless God is with him. Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he's not even going to see the kingdom. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's grown? He's got to go back into his mother's womb a second time. He says, well, he's born of the flesh. His flesh was born of the spirit of the spirit. You have to be born of the water and of the spirit. How can this be? Well, the wind blows where it does, and you hear that, but you don't see it. So are those that are born of the Spirit. He says, Nicodemus, if I tell you earthly things you don't understand, how am I going to tell you heavenly things? And then he says, are you the, literally, are you the master of Israel? The master. Nicodemus was the most renowned theological instructor in the nation of Israel. If you wanted to study Jewish theology, it was in vogue to study with Nicodemus. And Jesus remarked on that. Are you the master in Israel? In fact, it's are you the master of Israel? And you don't understand these things. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We know the conversation. Then in John chapter 7, when they're planning to kill Jesus, it's 
Nicodemus says, it's not lawful. We don't do this unless we have a tribunal, unless there's evidence. They said, are you also a Galilean? Why are you one of his disciples? They yell at him right away. And now here the third time in John chapter 19, he steps out of the shadows with about 100 pounds of myrrh, very pungent sap, very strong aloes, 100 pounds. The expense of that is unimaginable. And that was a burial fit for a king. And that's exactly what it was. He steps out of the shadow, this man. The Talmud tells us this, that his full name is Nicodemus Ben-Gorion. G-O-R-I-O-N. He's part of the Ben-Gorion family, the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem, the brother of Josephus, the historian. In fact, his daughter's wedding was so opulent, they said it was the most beautiful wedding ever taken place in Jerusalem. And not too many years after that, she's found gathering barley from the, the, the floor of a stable. They were so impoverished. And tradition says it's because her father, Nicodemus, had joined himself to the Christians. And he had lost everything because of it. And Gamaliel, who was his close friend, took Nicodemus into his home until the day that he died and cared for him. These two must have talked. These were not normal things. The darkness, the quake, the veil, the priests, all of this process. They came, it tells us, after they secure the body from Pilate, evidently Joseph goes out and Nicodemus, and they come now to the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, it says he's bringing the linen. That is called the tach rachim. It's not windings. This is not Egypt. They don't disembowel the body. They don't wrap the body like a mummy. This is a linen shroud. It's 14 foot long, about four foot wide. And it was Gamaliel in the days of Christ that made a decree that the Jews were to be buried in the shroud, in the Takrakim, because he said, we come into the world poor with nothing, we're wrapped as a baby, that we should leave that way. We don't take anything with us, and it's wrong for wealthy Jews to be buried in an opulent way with jewels and so forth, and for the poor Jews to be buried with nothing but a shroud because we're all going to stand before God the same way. So it was in the days of Christ that this tachrachim, this shroud, was implemented. And that's what Joseph of Arimathea is coming with, this long piece of linen. As he comes, Joseph is bringing the spices. One of them along the way has picked up a pry bar, possibly a hammer, a short ladder or a stool. Matthew, Mark, Luke specifically say that Joseph of Arimathea took the body down. John says they, where we just read, took the body down. Not the work of rich men. There are traditions that say 
that there was a short ladder placed on each side of the cross. The body was not normally high. Sometimes it was eaten, the feet up by jackals. It wasn't way up the way we think that it was. One tradition says that Joseph of Arimathea wrapped his arms to the cross with linen so they could pull out the, the spikes and he wouldn't fall. We don't know that for sure. They had to take the spikes out of his wrists, out of his feet, the longer one there. Dead weight. No doubt the body of Jesus slumping across one of their shoulders, being careful with the crown of thorns not to be stuck. The other spike removed. The back of Christ shredded. These two men trying to hold up the weight, trying to handle the body with some dignity, taking it down from the cross, handling it gently, trying to lay it down. Unimaginable. And then, interesting, some of the scholars will take the time to say, Dr. D.A. Carson, Hendrickson, Dean Farrar, all of them will just mention, and then the washing took place. I can't just read that. I got to go there. In fact, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there is the stone of washing that's there. Not that I believe, I think Gordon, Gordon's Calvary lends itself more to the scene, but it was called the Tahora. It's still practiced today by some Orthodox Jews. One of the families in church came and told me about a friend of theirs. The father had died in Israel. The daughter flew over to be there when he died. He passed of cancer. Uh, the Hevra Kadesh, the sacred society. There's a group of men that will wash the body of a Jewish man. There's a group of women that will wash the body of a Jewish woman. It goes back into antiquity that they took the body, and we'll call him Mr. Cohen, just to be polite. And she said she sat in the other room. She heard them talking to him. They washed his body. They said, Mr. Cohen, we're going to turn you over now and wash your back. They washed the back. They washed the body. They combed the hair. Then they lay it on the shroud, the tucker keen. They folded over the head, down to the feet again. And then they wrapped the ankles, the knees, the arms by the side a band around the head to keep the jaw shut. And they placed the body in the tomb, the sepulcher. She said he died nine in the morning. Within three hours, he was in the tomb. The process had taken place. They took the body of Jesus. The Encyclopedia Judaica, and I have a set of it, says... In the Mishnah, that the Tahora took precedent over the Sabbath. If your relative died on the Sabbath, you didn't have to finish the washing by sundown. There was greater homage paid to the dead body. It's called a mizvah. It's a commandment. It was something you did for someone they couldn't repay you for. It was the highest honor, the washing of the body. It says in the Talmud that sometimes myrtle was mixed with the water so it would be scented. And it says the hair was combed and brushed. Then the body was wrapped. The tradition we find in Ecclesiastes where it says, and as he came forth of his mother's womb naked, 
Shall he return and go as he came? He shall take nothing of his labor. He may carry nothing away in his hand. And it tells us in Ezekiel 16, they get the verses that when the baby's born, he's washed, the blood is washed off, and then he's wrapped in linen, in swaddling clothes, and, and that the same process then they decided would take place at passing. Our biblical reference, and I'm surprised more don't take note of it, you don't have to turn in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. It says, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and she died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. Now let's watch these men. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. The body is laid down. One of them, both of them have to begin to remove the crown of thorns. Pulling them gently, trying to remove the ones that were broken off under the skin taking the crown of thorns from his head. And then water. There's a cistern there at Gordon's Calvary, the tomb. Wet claws beginning to wash the body, to wash his face, his visage more marred than any man, beaten beyond human recognition. His beard ripped out of his face. Are they thinking of Isaiah? Wash the spit off of his face, out of his hair. Wash his chest with a lance, went through his side, the wounds being made clear as they wash the blood away. Pick up his arms, wash his hands, the nail marks, to wash his feet. Are they thinking of Psalm 22? They pierced my hands and my feet. To roll him over, unimaginable, his back lacerated, shredded. Really thinking by his stripes, we are healed. To wash that back with water and try to clean that up, unimaginable. And then to roll him back over again, to comb, to brush his hair, to gently close his eyes. I have a son who's a little over 30 years old. I can't imagine. But the father has placed him in gentle hands now. All hostile hands are now off of his son. 
And he's being honored and washed and cared for. Does Nicodemus think? He said, as Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Does Joseph of Aramea think? Isaiah said, with the wicked and the rich in his death. When his body is washed, they lay it on the top rakim. They pull the shroud over his head to his feet. They begin to put spices, myrrh and aloes in the folds and in the creases. They wrap his feet. They wrap it around the side to hold his ankles together. Spices around his knees and around his hands. Put the napkin around his head to hold his jaw shut. And then they take him, his body, and put him in the tomb. And it says they roll the door closed, huge stone, to the door of the sepulcher. And I watched them walk away, silent, broken, defiled, bloody. They put everything of their life on the line for a corpse, for a dead Jesus. They know nothing of the next chapter, the chapter that's after all chapters. They know nothing of that. What were those few days like for them as they left? Because you see, Sunday morning, here we are as the sun is coming in. It says it was just beginning to get light. Matthew says in 28.2, Behold, there was a great earthquake. All of Jerusalem shook. Matthew says there was an angel that descended and his countenance was like lightning. It was like the sun. He descended in power. I don't know if, the, if Jerusalem shook because Christ got up or because the angel descended, but heaven was at work. The stone was rolled away and the angel sat on it looking at the soldiers. We only find that out from Matthew because only Matthew as a tax gatherer had connection with those people. And it says they fell down, these brave Roman soldiers who would flee the tomb at the stake of their life. They fell down like dead men and shook. That's a funny dead man, isn't it? And they ran to the priests. When something like that happens, you find a priest. And the priest said, you tell them that the disciples came and stole them. They gave him a certain amount of money. No doubt Joseph of Marimathea and Nicodemus hear about this. Well, we watch Mary Magdalene and the disciples come to the tomb. Peter and John run there. We see this remarkable scene. But the one we don't see that seems so remarkable to me is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea coming to the tomb looking in, seeing the shroud flat and empty that they had wrapped around him, seeing the napkin they had tied around his head folded, laying by itself. What 
was it like for them that morning looking at these things? What did they talk about? Paul tells us he was seen at one time after his resurrection by over 500. Paul, when he writes Corinthians, said most of them are still alive, as he writes. No doubt that was probably in Galilee where the Lord had told his disciples to meet him. He had appeared to his own in Judea, but evidently a number of days after that, he appears in Galilee. Who was there? Who was there? I'm sure there was a centurion and his servant there. I'm sure there was at least one leper, used to be a leper there. There was a widow from Nain there with her son that had been raised from the dead, looking at a risen, glorified Savior filled with wonder. No doubt there was a paralytic and his four friends there on that day. There was a man that had been called Legion and no doubt his family Jairus and his wife and their daughter. A man that had had a withered hand. A woman that had a blood flow. No doubt Peter, his mother-in-law. Mary Magdalene. And I think two that stood there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What was it like for them to look into the eyes that they had closed, now open, looking back at them? And when Jesus was walking amongst his disciples, talking to them, how did he look when he looked over at Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Did his eyes glisten? Did he say with his eyes, you treated me so gently. You treated my body with such courtesy. Did his eyes smile at them? Was it like for these men to look in the eyes they had closed? What was it like for them to see the hands and feet, the nail marks they had watched, animated, teaching, the mouth, the jaw they had washed, speaking, was it like for them? Were they part of the 120 in the upper room on Pentecost? I would imagine. What was every Passover after that like for these two? What was it like when they sat with the church at the communion table and remembered his broken body and his shed blood? were Easter's like for the rest of their lives. These are men that we're going to see soon. Tradition says that in the fourth century, the tombs 
of Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and Stephen were discovered, unearthed together. And in the Roman calendar, the Christian calendar, August 3rd is the day of Saint Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala, which is the house of Gamaliel, where evidently he spent the rest of his days. That's why Gamaliel in the book of Acts says, you know, you better be careful that you don't be found to be fighting against God with these Christians. March 17th, the same day as St. Patty's Day, but long before St. Patty's Day on the Roman calendar, is the day of St. Joseph of Arimathea. Tradition says that Philip the Apostle sent him to England, to Britain. That's corroborated by a record of Simon Zelotes, who also evidently went there. But if you go to Glastonbury today in Somersetshire, there's the chapel of St. Joseph of Arimathea. They say there, you don't call him Joseph of Arimathea anymore. You call him Joseph of Glastonbury. It is said he was the first to preach the gospel in England. And he built a wicker pulpit with thorns and branches. And he stood and he preached Christ in England. What would they say to us today, these two? They've been standing in glory now for 2,000 years. In a huge multitude of angels and men, I think they stand together. It says... In the midst of the whole scene, there is a lamb with the marks of slaughter upon it. The only man-made things in heaven. And it says, no flesh glories in his presence. These two must stand there with hearts filled with thankfulness, looking at those marks of slaughter, never saying to anyone, never glorying, but thinking, we washed them. We cleansed them so they could be seen through all eternity. What would they say to us this morning? Again, you know, I think the way the church is, if they could get Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they would say, hey, would you do a financial seminar for us? You're two of the wealthiest guys that ever lived in Jerusalem. You know, you can teach us about fundraising. Imagine what these guys would say. They would say, no. We'll come to your church and we'll tell you about Jesus Christ. We'll tell you about the marks on his body. We'll tell you about the price that he paid. We'll tell you about the power and the glory of his resurrection. We'll tell you what it was like to look into his eyes and to hear his voice after he was risen from the dead. We'll tell you about Jesus. Don't ask us to come and talk about money and fundraising. Let us come and tell you about Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I think they would tell us, don't be secret disciples anymore. Maybe you're in a college campus. Maybe you're in an environment where there's going to be a cost to pay if you're open about your faith in Jesus Christ. They would say, we did what we did for a dead Jesus. You have a risen Jesus. 
You have a living Jesus who walks with you, who never leaves you or forsakes you, who loves you. Stand up. The hour is late. The harvest is great. The labors are few. Stand up for Jesus. He suffered in agony for you. He was shamed for you. Stand up for him. I think what they would say, you, you know, you think the Bible is inerrant? You think you can take it literally? You think you can interpret prophecy literally? They would say, we are the literal interpretation of prophecy. We are the ones that Isaiah wrote of, that the psalmist wrote of. We are, yes, you can believe the Bible literally, every word of it. It's real. It abides forever. And I think what they might say to you today, if you don't know him, Paul says this, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you will confess with your mouth, God, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And if you will believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you don't know him this morning, the musicians are going to come. I'm going to ask that maybe you just slip down here when the service is over. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. We'd love to give you a Bible to pray with you. We don't know if you'll have tomorrow or the next day or the day after. The Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. We serve a living Christ, not a religion, not a denomination. Do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus? That is not sufficient. Do you know him? He's alive. He'll change your life. Forgive your sins. Emancipate you. Set you free. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. For the rest of us, let's let these two rise off the page and speak to our hearts. God has entrusted to us. You know, these are men that have passed the baton to us. We stand here in the last days. Christ is coming soon. The world is disintegrating. Our hope is a blessed hope. Our hope is not America's hope or Russia's hope. Our hope is the blessed hope. The coming of the king. The gathering of his bride into his arms. The setting up of his kingdom. The judging of the wicked on behalf of the righteous. When we leave here today, we leave here and we enter the mission field. Let's not do it in the flesh. Let's stand. Let's ask God to fill us with his spirit today. Lord, I know you've overheard. And we look into these things, Lord. Lord, they reach deep, Lord Jesus, within us, Lord. 
the truth of your death and your resurrection, Lord, we are still growing in grace, Lord, and the knowledge of who you are, Lord. After all of these years, we are still overwhelmed, Lord, when you touch us with the truths of these things, Lord. It still breaks us down, Lord. Your love, Lord. Think of how many of us standing here would never have known one another, Lord, if you hadn't saved us. We certainly wouldn't be standing here ready to lift up our voices and sing your praise, Lord. It's all yours, Lord. All the glory, all the praise, all the honor, Lord. It's all yours, Lord Jesus. We love you. We lift our hearts, Lord, and our voices. And Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. We love you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Joe Foch. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Joe's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.